Welcome to PSQH, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talk to epidemiologist Robert Garcia about the need to improve infection control and vascular access. And now, on to the interview. This is Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. I'm joined today by epidemiologist Robert Garcia. We're going to talk about peripheral IV infections and sort of how to uh, reduce those and, and pay the, you know, the proper attention to those that are is being paid to other uh, infections. So uh, thanks for joining me today, Mr. Garcia. Sure. Absolutely. A pleasure. Uh, and I was wondering to start things off, if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and, uh, you know, sort of, you know, how you got involved with, uh, you know, with this work. Sure. sure. Um, originally, I was a microbiologist. I was a trained microbiologist who worked in a, a number of hospital laboratories. Um, I've been in the infection prevention field now for 40 years. I've um, worked in, <clears throat> covered nine different hospitals, and I've done a lot of national work through the national organization and um, lectured basically uh, really not only in the U.S., across the entire U.S., but in um, Europe as well. And uh, part of my uh, original uh, interest and training was in the prevention of infections associated with uh, intravenous catheters. And, you know, I think one of the things that we were going to talk about today is just the fact that um, CLABSIs seem to get the most attention uh, when it comes to healthcare-associated infections. Um, you know, why do you think that it sort of overshadows uh, other infections uh, associated with, you know, vascular devices? So CLABSIs are uh, central line-associated bloodstream infection, and they were originally coined uh, really through the CDC, through their division, what's called uh, NHSN. And NHSN is the National Healthcare Safety Network, and uh, they're the ones that are really the, uh, the receiving and analysis portion of CDC, and it's required... Um, of all hospitals in the United States to report certain infections that they identify. Um, and one of those is uh, the prevention of CLABSIs. Now, CLABSIs in itself are a subdivision or a, or, or a segment of uh, catheter-related BSIs. And catheter-related BSIs really cover the, the, the gauntlet of all kinds of intravenous catheters. So central lines in itself really are catheters that, um, when inserted, the tip of the catheter lies in a great vessel of the heart. But there are many, many other intravascular uh, catheters that are used in healthcare uh, throughout the United States and throughout the world. Um, they include uh, hemodialysis catheters, arterial catheters, and um, Probably the, the, the greatest number of catheters that are used in the United States are peripheral IVs. Estimates in the United States that um, that they sell about 350 million peripheral IVs, and that's just basically a uh, an estimate based on uh, on numbers from manufacturers in the U.S. We don't really know the true number of um, peripheral IVs that are that are so. So having said that, 
the thing about NHSN is that it required the hospital to report collapses, as I mentioned to you. But And, and that's been going on now for, well, I would say, um, more than 15 years. But NHSN has never required hospitals to report bacteremias that they identify that may be associated with other than central line. So we have a good feeling about the, the, the rates for central line catheter infections, but we do not have a very good uh, feeling for uh, bloodstream infections, BSIs associated with these other catheters, including peripheral IVs which number uh, many, many more millions than central lines that are used. Um, how can awareness of these, of these peripheral IV-related uh, infections be increased? Well, I think that right now what um, hospitals have to do is if they um, incorporate practices within their quality improvement function of identifying these kinds of inspections, number one. Uh, and what I do, infection prevention, one of the main modules is surveillance. Surveillance is the act of identifying these kinds of infections. They're identified in this particular case through uh, positive blood cultures. And NHSN publishes very uh, specific criteria for how you would identify a central line BSI. Now, it would not be that much different for uh, identifying BSIs among these other catheters. Um, and uh, essentially it would be, um, if a patient has a uh, catheter for at least two uh, inpatient days on a, on a inpatient unit, starting on the third day forward, uh, this patient, if they have a um, catheter, an IV catheter of some kind, uh, it may be related to an infection associated with the use of that medical device. So we have a very strong um, group of individuals, uh, infection preventionists throughout the country, <clears throat> which have a great deal of experience of identifying these kinds of infections. So I think that that is fairly uh, set. I think that what has to happen is a couple of things. <clears throat> we have to get national organizations to identify this as being a very important um, um, metric, essentially, in order for hospitals to measure. And by these national organizations, I, I, I mean organizations that represent um, a number of professions like my own, APIC, Association of Professional Function Control, and a number of other organizations throughout the country which, um, which are formed by experts in these kinds of fields, which are either insertion and maintenance of uh, intra intravenous catheters, uh, prevention um, uh, organizations like SHEA, which is the uh, Society of Healthcare Epidemiology, and I would say the quality organizations, which are very, very important, organizations such as AHRQ and uh, a number of other quality organizations need to uh, step up and say that these are important uh, infections to identify and very, and very important to prevent. 
in all the kinds of uh, NHSN uh, metrics that were were uh, established by CDC over the number of years. <clears throat> They've always published also preventive guides, and these were, were published by many different uh, quality organizations. So th in that respect, I think we have also a lot of strength because we would be able to publish uh, a concise set of guidelines in order on how to prevent these kinds of infections. And they're really not that much different as the ones that we have that prevent um, uh, central line infection. Um, I'd also would have to say that um, the other thing that I think that would maybe uh, tip this over to a more um, uh, uh, the side where you would uh, eventually uh, do these kinds of functions, surveillance functions, for, uh, let's say, peripheral IV-associated BSIs would be the financial incentive. Uh, a number of years ago, CMS, which controls or uh, oversees the payments for Medicare and Medicaid to hospitals, uh, implemented national um, regulations, which said that if you develop certain kinds of infections, uh, they would not reimburse hospitals for that. Right. So this is really the financial incentive. So if there were that kind of impetus, which uh, perhaps that, that'll come around, you know, over the next several years, I don't know, um, there would be a, an incentive from the leadership side of organizations in order to establish preventive programs um, for preventing these kinds of other than central line infections. And you, um, you recently published a white paper um, on this topic, and I was wondering if you could uh, share what some of your recommendations are uh, in the paper about how to how to deal with these uh, these types of infections. Well, in that white paper, <clears throat> I give a lot of background in terms of like you know what we just spoke about the uh, number of infections that occur, for example, related to central lines and the cost, and what was done over the years uh, implementing things that we know now as bundles. And those bundles uh, were, very, were very effective in reducing, let's say, CLABSIs over the last five years by about 30%. But if you flip the coin, you have to understand that about 70% of all CLABSIs that occur have not been prevented. And this is information uh, as published by the CDC. The thing that we have to understand is that uh, clinicians who uh, either insert or maintain IV catheters have had tremendous experience on uh, the basics of what to do. So I think that establishing bundles for things like the prevention of BSIs for uh, PIV is, um, is largely known. However, let's take it one more step. One of the prime, if not the most important uh, uh, routes that bloodstream infections occur as associated for uh, with uh, IV devices is organisms that uh, are transferred from the skin and travel across the uh, the outer lumen of the of the catheter and rest of, uh, on the catheter surface um, inside uh, the vessel in which it was inserted. Now, the majority 
and, and, and from and from studies that have been done for many years, we know that the prime way that um, these infections occur is extraluminally. So that we know that the organisms that lay on the skin are the primary source for BSIs that occur with intravascular catheters. And they include everything from candida, uh, yeast infections, uh, to things like staph epidermidis and staph aureus, both um, MRSA and uh, methicillin sensitive staph aureus. And these are among the top organisms that um, are uh, associated with uh, bloodstream infections. And these are uh, have been well um, uh, talked about in the literature. So if that is the case, and we understand that, uh, for example, a patient who has an IV inserted, peripheral IV inserted, um, may have that catheter for a period of seven days plus. We know that over time, how the infection actually occurs is that on the catheter surface, what's formed is what we call biofilm. Biofilms are a matrix of different proteins and different um, um, different molecules that are sent by the body. And they try to deal with these organisms, but unfortunately what happens is the biofilm that forms on the surface of the catheter begins to mask the uh, organisms themselves. And over days, uh, as the biofilm grows, what happens is that uh, eventually different cell aggregates begin to um, to uh, remove themselves from the, from the biofilm. And that's what feeds the blood and eventually causes the person to have bacteremia. So it seems very logical that a um, an adequate covering, a dressing, that would cover the skin, but have long-term uh, effect in reducing the number of organisms that proliferate on it, would be a, a primary way to reduce the number of, of these infections. And if I could briefly just say a little bit about the development of uh, IV dressing. In the 1990s, um, polyurethane dressings were developed. Uh, they were uh, transparent, and uh, essentially uh, an improvement over uh, gauze and, and tape dressings in that the um, site could be uh, ob observed by the, by the person maintaining these catheters. And they certainly were an advancement in the field. However, studies had shown that patients with these kinds of dressings had an increase in bloodstream infection. And the reason for this was because moisture would build up under these dressings and eventually uh, actually uh, uh, give uh, a, a richer environment, nutrient growth for these bacteria to then uh, have an extraluminal approach of causing infection associated with catheters. And um, a number of years ago then, in the 2000s, manufacturers developed uh, chlorhexidine-based um, uh, dressings. And these were films that contained uh, chlorhexidine glucanate. CHG is a very, very well-known antiseptic, and it's been studied in, in many, many studies. So I guess the bottom line question is, is antimicrobial dressings, do they have an effect in reducing BSI? Well, there's been at least four meta-analyses that have been published 
uh, with uh, different products that are um, basically like I mentioned to you. They either come as a uh, chlorhexidine impregnated disc or dressings themselves that had uh, chlorhexidine films on them. And they've shown that to be a benefit uh, in many, many studies of reducing uh, bloodstream infection. So I guess the next step in the evolution really is, is what would be the next advancement? And what is the, the, the uh, I guess, the limitations, if you want to call, um, of current uh, chlorhexidine uh, dressings? Well, current chlorhexidine dressings, let's call them CHA dressings. These are dressings that, uh, in which chlorhexidine was bound in many, many ways to salt formulations in order to stabilize them and increase solubility. And um, they are the ones that really have been studied in many of these meta-analyses. So the limitations of that really is, is that when you talk about the, the, uh, the best effect of, of chlorhexidine is to produce it as a free chlorhexidine. And that is what now uh, uh, is the next step in evolution. Because free chlorhexidine, even though its concentration uh, is less than in the, uh, the, the bound, let's call it the bound chlorhexidine dressing, is less. In, uh, in a number of studies now that have been shown to be more effective in having the chlorhexidine then uh, not restricted by all these other components that are added to it in current dressing, uh, appears to be more effective because now the chlorhexidine is not bound and able to have uh, a broader effect. And, um, you know, this chlorhexidine addition, this evolutionary, let's call it CHX, is um, bound in, in these new uh, IV dressings uh, throughout the entire dressing. So over uh, studies have shown that over even a seven-day period, they are um, increased effectiveness by by significant uh, amount, even a five log reduction uh, over a number of days, which um, uh, reflects a lot of what the INS standards have now uh, been uh, essentially uh, uh, stating in their recommendations about changing dressings rather than 48, 72 hours to as needed. So you may have hospitals that now change their protocols, but the question that hospitals have to ask is, are you um, then uh, promoting um, greater uh, development of bacteria under that current dressing rather than um, taking a step back and seeing whether you are, you know, what your bacteremia rates are and whether you can control those more. So, um, how widespread is the use of CHX dressing? Right now, it's, um, it's, it certainly is limited. But as I mentioned to you, um, I think that this is going to be the next evolutionary step. Remember that what we, we currently do uh, for someone who is going to get um, an intravenous catheter, we do for the most part, and, and many studies shows fairly high compliance in, in most institutions uh, of what the basics that are known in, uh, in, in, in um, bundles. We know, for example, 
you know, hand hygiene is important. Um, the prepping of skin with uh, an antiseptic, which has its limitations because most antiseptics for the skin that are applied only last uh, perhaps 24, 48 hours after application. Um, and, um, and certainly covering this site with a dressing that will be adhered, let's say, to all four sides and that it's uh, maintained in a clean uh, uh, manner, uh, et cetera. So we, we know the basics and those I don't, I don't believe that are, are going to change. I think the next evolution really is to enhance uh, the effectiveness of uh, antiseptics over a longer period of time to reflect the time frame that catheters are being used. And uh, you know, you mentioned earlier that you you know you want to see organizations kind of getting on board with, um, you know, sort of raising the awareness and the focus on on these peripheral IV infections. Um, you know, is there a groundswell? Is that happening now? Uh, you know, is it sort of starting to to, to kind of move in that direction? Well, I've um, certainly have spoken to a number of colleagues over the last. A uh, few years, uh, COVID aside, of course, <laughs> um, and there seems to be some um, uh, interest in expanding surveillance. Uh, certainly, there are limitations in terms of the personnel, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that we have to understand that uh, more and more hospitals across the country are moving to more automated systems for identifying. Uh, BSIs that are related to um, to catheters. Uh, I myself have experience with that, and um, they're they are very very accurate. They're able to be programmed so that they link up bloodstream infections and uh, patients that have catheters. They take that information out of your um, you know the patient's uh, medical record information and then uh, provide that as a, um, a work list for uh, infection preventionists that they can view you know, a number of times a day and, um, and assist them in identifying those uh, potential kinds of infection. Uh, certainly, if that were expanded, not just for identifying those with central lines, but with the other catheters I mentioned to you, dialysis, uh, arterials, peripherals, et cetera, um, that would just be one more additional step, and those then could be uh, quickly um, identified and um, not necessarily reported, as, as, as I mentioned to you, NHSN doesn't require those reported. But remember, that would be an excellent quality improvement um, initiative inside hospitals uh, to improve the care of uh, the patients that they serve. I mean, so op you're optimistic, though, that, you know, things are going to eventually sort of expand to, you know, sort of cover these other infections in the, in the next, I don't know, several years, I guess? Yes, I'm optimistic for the fact that um, I think that eventually um, the organizations that I mentioned to you will have enough impetus so that uh, more uh, uh, metrics will be added and be required to be reported by hospital. Because uh, quality doesn't end 
for just the the ones that that have been uh, uh, surveyed, you know, and we've known about for the last you know number of years. I think uh, eventually it will be um, uh, identified through a number of studies and a number of uh, uh, presentations that are done uh, and and information provided to these quality organizations that there needs to be um, uh, more uh, prevention done uh, because these are uh, detrimental for patients that have been admitted to hospitals. And right now, uh, we don't have a very broad um, uh, aspect of that, as I mentioned to you, because there are no uh, national uh, data that we can tap into to say that, you know, these are, you know, at X level and then um, that we can reduce them, let's say, as uh, some quality organizations have called for, you know, 50% by, you know, five years from now, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm very optimistic that eventually these uh, will be included. All right. Um, I want to ask you another question. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned that you've, you know, you've been working in infection prevention for 40 years. Well, I wanted to get your take on it. How has infection prevention as a field changed since you started working as an IP? Uh, I've been covering this stuff for about 20 years, and, and it feels like, you know, uh, it, there's really been a lot more focus on it you know, now, you know, over the years, but I want to get your take since you've been, you've been in, you know, in the field for, uh, for much longer. Oh my God. <laughs> we could do another hour discussion of that. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, the, the, the original, um, if I, if I go back, you know, to the beginning when I started, essentially most of what really had to be done was based on in the individual internal decisions by a hospital of, of essentially what they wanted to uh, survey, uh, uh, you know, as infections. And uh, prevention was in its infancy. I mean, we never had anything such as bundles or guidelines or anything like that. And studies that were being done were, were just um, only beginning to be published. And uh, I remember going back uh, so many years about some landmark studies that were done in terms of uh, bloodstream infections related to catheters and um, some of the work that was done by some very famous people in the field. Um, and the, in the beginning of it, uh, really trying to identify how they occurred. It wasn't even, it wasn't even work about uh, its prevention. Yeah, it was more, more reactive than, than proactive, right? That's correct. And until um, IHI um, came about now uh, almost 20 years ago now with um, their original um, uh, impetus for prevention on a, on, a, on a very wide scale, because what had happened was they based um, their recommendations on a um, Institute of Medicine report that um, more than 90,000 people a year died of, uh, of infections in hospitals based on um, uh, infections that they did not have when they were admitted. That was very revolutionary. Right. And hospitals then, as a result, through quality organizations, instituted uh, IHI initiatives. 
And I remember very vividly how we had teams. Uh, for example, we established teams to round in uh, ICUs, adult ICUs. Uh, with checklists, you know, manual checklists, you know, uh, about certain things that that should be done, that were uh, on the uh, on the list from IHI on prevention. But also remember that when IHI started, in terms of preventing uh, BSIs, it all had to do with insertion. It had nothing to do with maintenance, right. and that didn't occur for a number of years later. And even when maintenance occurred, it, it had really very, very little to do with how we uh, maintained uh, dressings. And this became extremely important uh, when understanding that patients with catheters could have them for literally uh, many, many days or even weeks. And um, after I had already, you know, done the basics of washing my hands and and uh, you know, applying antiseptic, a patient could still have an, a, a, a catheter and needed a very secure dressing. And this is, I think, um, became very evident about you know um, BSIs being very stubborn and what we needed to do. So I think you know, from when I started to now, it's really been night and day. Yeah. And uh, we've shown improvement, but I think we have uh, quite a ways to go. Definitely. But, uh, you know, I think uh, you're definitely fighting the good fight. So, uh, uh, Robert, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This is uh, fascinating stuff. And obviously, there's a, there's a lot of work to do, like you said, but uh, sounds like we're, you know, we're, we're going in the right direction anyway. Thank you so much for having me today. Appreciate All right. it. All right. Thanks. That wraps up episode 35 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you join me next time. You can find more information about the podcast and listen to on-demand episodes on the show's page at psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.